Articles by Desiring God Christ did not please himself. The Joy of Bearing with Others' Failings Written and read by David Mathis We are born with a knack for spotting the failures of others, and we've been conditioned to develop that skill. Identify specks from a distance? No problem. Even as we somehow persistently struggle to see our own planks. And life gives us plenty of specks to spot. Life on earth, for now, means a life surrounded by failures. Amazingly, the Christian gospel is not too grand and lofty for these regular disappointments, for the dark and painful nooks and crannies of real life. In fact, Paul's grand epistle to the Romans, perhaps the greatest letter ever written, second only to Hebrews, points us to the specks uncovering such relational challenges as proof of the power of Christ's person and work. In Romans 14 and 15 in particular, Paul addresses emerging fault lines between Christians over adiaphora, literally not differences regarding the essence of our faith, but various non-essential issues. Such matters are not clearly instances of sin, plain violations of Christ's law like lying or stealing, Differences of opinion, sometimes even of conviction, like whether to observe certain holy days or not, or whether to eat meat or drink wine that had been sacrificed to idols. In the first century, these issues related to the epic shift from the old covenant to the new. Some differences, as in Galatians, were of the essence of the faith. Others were not. Though Romans 14 and 15 speaks to controversies that are not differences of the essence of Christianity, Paul doesn't overlook them, ignore them, or treat them flippantly. Rather, he sees in them an opportunity to bring the very heart of the faith to bear on Christ's people by focusing on how we treat one another despite such differences. Paul dignifies the pain and grief such differences of opinion can cause by bringing to them the greatest possible remedy and solace, Christ himself. To the strong in the week. Elsewhere, we have instructions for what to do when a brother sins against us, as in Matthew 18. But what about when others aggravate us with errors and immaturities that are not plain instances of sin? And what if these are not simple differences of opinion, but conviction? In Romans 14 and 15, Paul does believe that one group is right, so to speak, and the other wrong in terms of the truth of the matter. One group he calls the strong, the other, the weak. He concedes, I know and am persuaded in the Lord Jesus that nothing is unclean in itself. So, as he writes elsewhere, if one of the unbelievers invites you to dinner and you are disposed to go, eat whatever is set before you without raising any questions on the ground of conscience. However, if your host announces this has been offered in sacrifice, then do not eat. Not for your own sake, but for the sake of your host, lest you confuse and confirm him in soul-destroying idolatry. In other words, consider his eternal good, not just your own momentary appetite and ability to exercise freedom. In Romans 15, 1-7, Paul specifically addresses the strong, who know in faith and conscience all food and drink to be clean. Sure, both groups are flawed. Paul's strategy, however, is to begin by addressing the strong and charge them to take the first step toward peace. 
Paul appeals to them to rise above the failings of the weak, even as he acknowledges that these are genuine failings. And as he does so, he clarifies the truth of the matter for the weak who are listening in. Our tensions today may not be the ones that hampered the church in Rome in the first century, but we have plenty of fault lines and unnecessary divisions of our own. So what might we learn from these verses for not simply bearing with the blind spots of others, but even more, as those who are strong, to literally carry the failures of the weak, as Romans 15.1 says. The call. First is the calling to love. Appeal as he does. Paul does not see this as just an opportunity, take it or leave it, but as an obligation. As Christians, we owe each other love, which for the strong means to bear with the failings of the weak. In fact, it would be sin to violate Christ's law by failing to love. Christians are not obligated to eat meat or not, or celebrate certain feasts or not, but we are obligated to love one another. Owe no one anything, Paul says in Romans 13:8, except to love each other, for the one who loves has fulfilled the law. Bear one another's burdens, Galatians 6:2, and so fulfill the law of Christ. Pork, wine, and holidays are optional. Christian love is not. Yet Paul doesn't leave such love unqualified or unspecified. He gives terms, an example, and the source of power. The terms. After the call to love neighbor comes the terms of this love. For his good, to build him up. Romans 15.2 The obligation to love does not require the Christian to make others feel loved on human terms. Christ sets the terms. We love with others' good in view as God defines the good, not the whims or momentary preferences or demands of sinners. The Christian call to love is not to cater to immaturities or unbelief or to coddle sin, but to view our neighbors with the mind and eyes of Christ and love them for their good, to build them up in Christ. This call to higher pleasures for our neighbors than their whims is also a call to higher pleasures for us in loving them. To the strong, don't just give in to the weak's immediate wants or to your own. Love seeks the eternal rather than momentary good, both of neighbor and of ourselves, which leads to Paul's striking example in Romans 15.3, Christ did not please himself. The example. When it comes to inconvenient, uncomfortable love, Jesus provides the greatest example and model imaginable. It is noteworthy, writes John Murray, how the apostle adduces the example of Christ in his most transcendent accomplishments in order to commend the most practical duties. On his knees, with sweat pooling like drops of blood, Jesus did not give in to his own immediate wants in Gethsemane. Rather, he came to embrace the divine will and with it the timeless good and upbuilding of others. He did not choose momentary desires, whether his own or others. Surely in the moment, the disciples, if given the choice, would have been eager for Jesus to flee. Peter had said, never Lord, when first hearing of the cross. The disciples were not yet able to conceive of how Christ's death could possibly lead to greater joy. 
At a basic level, pleasing himself would have meant giving in to his own momentary, very natural and human desires to avoid death, especially the utter torture of death on a cross, and worst of all, the sense of separation from his father. Yet in the garden, Jesus abandons his human desires for self-preservation and wills the divine will. He chooses it. In saying to his father, not my will, but yours be done, he makes the divine will his own as man. At one level, he very much does not want this, but at a deeper level, he does. Even as Isaiah 53, 11 prophesied, out of the anguish of his soul, he shall see and be satisfied. So too, Hebrews 12, 2 confirms that in the anguish and horrific distress, it was at bottom the holy pursuit of joy that animated and sustained his obedience. For the joy that was set before him, Jesus endured the cross. This does not mean that we counsel Christians, contrary to Paul's letter in Christ's life, to please yourselves. Rather, we say that God in Christ is so deeply and enduringly pleasing that we are freed from pleasing ourselves in relation to others. Pleased in God and knowing that in Christ he is pleased with us, we are liberated to turn our eyes from ourselves to others and their genuine needs and to love them for their good and upbuilding. The power. Finally, marvelous as Christ's example is, Paul presses even deeper. He not only says that Christ succeeded in love, but shows us how. What enabled Jesus as man to look past his initial human desires for the joy set before him on the other side of torture and death? He trusted in the word of his father. Paul represents Jesus living out and drawing strength from Psalm 69.9. The reproaches of those who reproached you fell on me. Note the Godward orientation and God-centeredness this brings to Christ's great act of love and to our little ones. And the way the power to endure came to him was not simply through truth, but through scripture. With his uniquely holy, sinless human mind, Jesus might have theologized and philosophized in any number of ways to put his calling and excruciating pain into larger perspective. Surely he could have preached to himself in many creative ways, but in his moment of greatest duress, he turns to the very words of God, in this case, captured in Psalm 69, which prompts Paul to write, whatever was written in former days was written for our instruction, that through endurance and through the comfort of the scriptures, we might have hope, like Jesus did. The God of endurance and comfort awakened persevering love in his own son through the instrument of his written word. Jesus was comforted and given strength to endure by rehearsing scripture. And so it will be for us, just as the soul of Christ himself was fueled by what was written in former days. So we also fill our tank on God's promises to free us from selfishness and sinful self-regard to both know what is truly for our neighbor's good and building up and to not please ourselves, but gladly do it. The God of endurance and comfort himself does the miracle in and through us by his word. As Christ has welcomed you. 
Such a disinterested pursuit of joy in the good of others called love leads in time to Christians strong and weak living in harmony with one another, in one accord with Christ Jesus, that together you may with one voice glorify the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. Our rising above our own whims and initial preferences, like Jesus did, glorifies Him and His Father. After all, this is precisely how Christ welcomed us. Not pleasing Himself in the garden, but trusting God's words to take the much harder path for our good. So Murray asks, Shall we, the strong, insist on pleasing ourselves in the matter of food and drink to the detriment of God's saints? and the edification of Christ's body? The joy of not pleasing ourselves comes not only when a neighbor is needy, but even when he's in error, or the need stems from his own defective faith and conscience. While dying to our own rights and liberties and selves cuts against almost every impulse of our age, we learn instead in Christ to welcome one another as Christ has welcomed you for the glory of God. For more resources, visit DesiringGod.org.